Smorgasbord. I'm Tom Shapira, and with me as always... Hello, I'm Sean Edry. I pack the things that matter and leave the things that don't. Then I make like a banana and split. As I feel opal, my wonderful opal, ebbing away, I start to cry. But I manage not to look back, for I have more to see on the road ahead. Oh, where's this from? Starman. Oh, okay. Last issue. Oh yeah, yeah. I've I've recently reread Starman. I do not like it at all. We're gonna have to have a conversation yeah. Oh, yeah. about that at some in point. An, in another podcast, this is the Super <laughs> Sport Podcast, brought to you by the fine folks at Seekworks, the best online and initial source for comic books, news, reviews, and critique. Buy their books, read their articles, and watch their movies. And remember that Seacord is also on Patreon. Support smart criticism in comics. Yeah, and this is part of our uh, Countdown to Extinction series. Yes. Where uh, we've recently moved from our bi-monthly, fortnightly, whatever you call it, schedule to doing it once a month. And we're doing themed episodes. And episode 75 will be our end of the year and end of the podcast special. Yes. Unless there's some cosmic reset and then we end up coming back in younger, more energetic forms. I don't think that's possible for me to be any younger or hipper. I'm <laughs> full of energy, Sean, which, I've, you, sto- which you, I've stolen from power plants. You could be walking around with, like, bigger shoulder pads and some knives, <laughs> you know. Uh, so what do we do with this episode? Episode before we've talked Marvel and two episodes before that we've talked... Frill power. So what's this one? Well, this time we're going to do the smorgasbord year zero and talk about our first uh, entry points into comics and how we really got to where we are right now, where we're so sick of this stuff that we don't even want to talk about it anymore. (laughs) Um, It was a long journey, although perhaps not as long as people at Marvel and DC would prefer. And... uh, I figured that I would start by asking you, Tom, how did you start getting into comics? What was your first experience with the superhero genre? Okay, okay, so see, it's a complicated answer. It's a multi-part answer. And my first comics were not superhero comics at all, because I was born and raised in Israel. We did not have superhero culture here. Actual imported American comics didn't become available to me until I was like 13, 12, something like that. Mm-hmm. So my first comics were uh, European albums, which were actually translated. In our, our local library, we had Tintin, Asterix, and Lucky Luke. And these were my first comics, only I didn't think of them as comics because I didn't really have the concept. It was just, you know, books I've read as a child. But this was my first exposure. Any of them in particular stand out? Uh, it's, they're all, like, massively important. And they're all, like, big classics of the genre, of course. Tintin and Asterix are published, well, you know, in the case of uh, Tintin, republished and repackaged. But they're all considered very important and very classical. And I guess... That's the reason they chose to translate them, and specifically. And I, I still get a kick of them. I reread Asterix every once in a while, the early albums, and they're still super fun. Tintin as well. Uh, Lucky Look, I did not read for quite a while, but someday I'll, I'll do that. And it's just, it's good, clean fun. And in the case of Tintin, a lot of racism. Oof. It's a good, clean fun with racism. <laughs> 
Right uh, at home at today's readers. Mm-hmm. And after that, uh, we're getting into local uh, local traditions. In Israel, there's a writer-artist called Uri Fink, who basically was mainstream and still is Israeli mainstream comics by himself. And he had a series of albums published annually, mostly, sometimes even more than that, called Zbang, which is basically a bit like Archie, only dirtier. Because it started in the 1980s instead of the 1950s. And it's, you know, teenagers and cheap gags and, you know, like... Not, it's not the smartest thing in the world and probably not that high quality in retrospect. But it was one of those things that I kept coming back into over and over again. Because this was what was available. And he had all sorts of smaller series. He had a superhero parody called uh, Super Schlumper. Which probably wasn't as successful simply because there was nothing to parody as far as local readers were concerned. Because we didn't have... He, was, he knew superheroes. He read superheroes. But most of his audience were never really exposed to that thing he was making fun of. So there were only like two or three Super Schlumper albums and like 21 Bang albums. And it's still ongoing technically. Which is one of the things that I found really, really interesting, just the idea that the movies were presumably coming here, like uh, Christopher Reeve's Superman, Michael Keaton's Batman, those were here, but there was no culture of interest in superheroes, Uh, certainly not when I got here. No, 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 the first time I've read a Superman story, it wasn't a comic, it was a translation of the Roger Stern novelization of the death of Superman event. Yikes. Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't so bad. It, it wasn't as bad as the comic. And, it, and I remember reading that and being very excited because I was aware of Superman being a thing. But when he adapted the story, he adapted everything. So suddenly it's like, there's the Justice League. And I'm like, what's the Justice League? And there's all those superheroes. I'm like, what's a Blue Beetle? What's a Booster Gold? You know, they're talking about Offhandedly, oh, Green Lantern City. Who's this Green Lantern? And in like one in one page, Batman appears. And like, oh, I know Batman. This is super. I know this guy. And then he disappears again. And so that was my first exposure to the idea of a superhero universe. It wasn't a comic. It was a book based on a comic. Funnily enough, mm-hmm. I can say the same thing despite being on the other side of the Atlantic and arguably growing up in the heart of superhero culture because I grew up in New York where, you know, and this was in the time when Marvel and DC were like across the street from each other. So, and all the films were set in New York, etc. But I did not get into comics through comics either. My very first exposure to the medium happened because, much like you happened because of exposure to a different medium. Uh, in my case, the... Well, with me, it's kind of a funny story that I actually have two entry points. But the first one, chronologically speaking, was the Fox X-Men show. Of course. The animated series in 1992. Wait, 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 wait. Scott! (laughs) Gene! (laughs) Sean, I command you to commence this podcast in the name of the nature. No! Anyway, what, yeah, it's was, a ridiculous... That was, that was a proper adaptation of 90s hysteria. <laughs> Which then became like, I'm the juggernaut bitch, but that's a different meme for a oh, different no, time. No, 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 no. But, um, so the thing about the X-Men show, now, 
obviously today is a little embarrassing because it was not especially well voice acted. It, the animation was not great. Like, it wasn't a good show. But the thing was, because it was a relatively loyal adaptation of the absurdity of the X-Men comics, particularly in the early 90s, there was something about, like, the color and the superheroics and all that that really interested me. And during, as the first season was airing, I did end up going to a local comic shop and, you know, just looking around, not really figuring out what was going on. And there was this other kid there who was like, what are you doing here? And I'm like, I'm, I saw this X-Men show. Is there anything here like that? And he pointed me to the first comic I ever read, which was a trade paperback of the Dark Phoenix saga. Now, here's the thing. That book, I will always praise that book, and admittedly, a large part of that is going to be nostalgia, right? But the thing is, and this is a lesson that Marvel have completely lost these days, picking up that book and having no idea who, you know, why did Cyclops have a hat on his head, what happened to everybody's costumes, why was Wolverine wearing this and not the other one? Like, it was not accurate to the show because obviously it couldn't have been. But there was enough there, in spite of the fact that, like, if you remember, the Dark Phoenix saga is like the tail end of a 30-issue storyline. Yeah. Right? It's something that Claremont is building up and building up and building up for, like, since issue 100. It's 37 issues. The Dark Phoenix Saga trade paperback is, like, seven or eight of those issues. Really, like, just the end part of it, when she goes nuts. And yet, despite that, I was able to get into the story and not feel as though I were coming into the theater 30 minutes, you know, before the end of the film. Like, somehow there was enough context built into the story where I was like, okay, so this version of Gene is awesome, as opposed to, like, in the 90s version, it was, like, the with the head sock, where, yeah. like, every time she tries to use her power, she would pass out. Mm-hmm. And, like, the, the version that you see in the Dark Phoenix Saga is something else entirely. But I was able to make that jump and be like, okay, so this is actually how the comics did it, and they're not, you know, it's like an eight-year-old trying to figure out the difference between uh, source material and adaptation. But that sort of got me interested. And from the Dark Phoenix Saga, I didn't go chronologically, because back then we did not have internet access and, you know, archived comics and all that stuff. So it was pretty much me going in every month and being like, okay, um, I ended up making the jump from... Uh, the Dark Phoenix Saga to... This was the Labdel Nicieza run on X-Men when they were right in the middle of the Legacy Virus thing, which was kind of a downer, but also sort of like, okay, I think I can figure out what's going on and go from there. Um, however, all was not smooth sailing. Because what ended up happening was... Now, if you remember, 1992 was... Fox X-Men, 1993 was Lois and Clark, which I kind of liked. There was something about it that didn't really click for me as a kid, but it was sort of like, yeah, okay, Superman, whatever, let's try that. Unfortunately for me, the first uh, Superman book I ended up reading was The Death of Superman, (laughs) and you could not have found a more alienating book for me to read, because it was like... 
if you, you know, the, the book, the trade paperback includes, like, the whole Doomsday storyline, including all the stuff with the Justice League. And just like you said, like, it's, you know, who are the Justice League? But in my case, I'm like, I really don't know who these people are. Oh, you weren't excited. You were baffled. Yeah, I was like, wait, this is being treated like... You saw Bloodline, the Sorcerer, and who is this Joker again? Yeah, it's a Joker. There's like a green girl who had like fire and her name was fire. And I'm like... "Eh." Fire, the naturally green element, of course. Yeah... And it, it just didn't, like, and obviously, like, this was also during the whole media buzz of, like, the death of Superman. They were selling those damn black armbands everywhere. And I was like... Sean, I assure, I assume that you bought, like, five of those. Hell no! And now they're each worth about a zillion dollars, as my 1992 Wizard Guide to Comics told me. Listen, even... And, and you can retire peacefully. Even in single digits, I was cynical enough to be looking at that and being like, you've got to be effing kidding me no thank you <laughs> but that just shows you like the the difference you know that's probably why i was for a very long time a marvel fan yeah a marvel fan and not a dc fan because the the differences in terms of the types of story that were being told and i don't know like this is the thing i don't know if back then Fox and Warner Brothers were actively trying to bring people to the comics through the shows. I don't know if that was their intent or if they were just doing what the movies do today, which is like, we have taken this idea. We're going to do our own thing. I can't tell. But the end result of it was, you know, I put the uh, thing back down. And also, like, it's amazing how, like, we tend to think of the 90s as really like a negative period in comics. But... I'm thinking back, like, so there was X-Men, there was Lois and Clark, and there was Batman the Animated Series. But weirdly enough, Batman the Animated Series, um, that was a show where I didn't feel like it was trying to push me towards the books. Like, the show was giving me what I wanted from Batman. And I'm pretty sure that at the time this was happening, it was Nightfall in the comics. So I probably dodged the bullet there. Yeah, the ironic thing is that the comic, based on the series, are actually pretty much the best... I think the best ongoing Batman run ever, in terms of quality. That was uh, Batman Adventures or something? Yeah, it was called the Batman Adventures, or just, the you know, Batman the Animated Series comics. Mm. And those are spectacular to this very day. They just yeah. don't dip at all. But uh, obviously, you probably didn't know it at the time because DC would push their own line of books, like the regular Batman titles, which, yeah, like it, you said, were in the middle of some very weird shit. Well, that was also a situation where like, it wasn't ideal for for children, not in terms of the content, but in terms of what would happen would be I'd go to the, to the LCS and be like, um, I'm, you know, I, I watch like Batman. Do you have any Batman books? And they would show me like, uh, uh what was it? it? If it wasn't Nightfall, then it was like what came immediately after the whole thing with Israel. Oh yeah, Asbats. Yeah, Asbats. And it was like, even from the cover, you could tell like that. But that's not right. Why? Yeah, I, I had an Asbat comics because my mom once took me to like a magazine shop in the big city. In my because I I was born and lived my whole life up until my twenties in a kibbutz, which is like a small town of like five hundred people. So 
once in a blue moon we would go together to the big city and there was this magazine stand when I was really young and I just bought some comics because oh it, it's this comics and it looks interesting but I didn't know any English so I had a Batman mm-hmm. but I I would I would just look at the images and trying to like comprehend the story and it was the Israel Batman so I was I think I I have no idea what's going on he's talking to some sort of laser creature and he has swords <laughs> in his arms and there's there's Robin I recognize Robin but I'm not sure what what's the connotation here and yeah. I was sure it's just Batman in a different costume like being all evil or crazy or something I didn't know it was this Jean Paul Valley or something I will say that the 1990s X-Men cartoon and the Spider-Man cartoon are responsible for me getting into superhero comics proper because they were very popular in Israel as well. They were shown dubbed here. And I think off their popularity, mm-hmm. a local company called Contact Point tried to do a translation of X-Men and Spider-Man. It wasn't the first attempt. There was in the 1970s uh, Kevin or... No, Queen Comics it was called. And they did like Spider-Man and the Star Wars line, and if you find the translated versions today, I think they're worth quite a, quite a bundle. But anyway, in the 1990s, they did the X-Men and did Spider-Man, and I got them both, because I really liked the X-Men TV show, I heard like Spider-Man TV show, and I saw it in the store like, oh, it's more of that thing, I want that. And this was yeah. the first time I got a monthly issue. And with the entire history of the X-Men and Spider-Man open to them, the fine people at Contact Point chose to do Pre-Onslaught X-Men. <laughs> and, yes. and... And Ben Riley Spider-Man. Oh, no! Ben Riley Spider... Not Scarlet Spider. Not Clone Saga, even. Post-Clone Saga. First issue of your Spider-Man title is... Some blonde guy who's not Peter Parker. <laughs> who is Peter Parker? Because Peter Parker is a clone, apparently. Oh my god. Now, I, I liked it. I really loved that stuff because I was a small, stupid child with no sense of taste whatsoever. And I think I've mentioned in the podcast before that the good side of those comics is I've already experienced the worst. There is nothing in comics <laughs> to shock me. And, like, oh, oh, you're saying this this lineup is really bad. You're saying You're saying this is terrible. Son, son, I've seen the writer of Mutant X uh, oh, trying to write no. Spider-Man. No, not Mutant yeah, it X. Was, uh, it, Mackie? It was it, Mackie? Howard Mackie? Howard Mackie wrote several of those stories, yeah. Oh, God help us. Yeah. His but, main villain um, was a guy so called you, Armada. So... You remember Armada? No, you don't. <laughs> Nobody remembers Armada. I don't. There are more people who remember Big Wheel. <laughs> Oh my god, Big Wheel. I actually remember Big Wheel. Ooh, those, those were dark times. at the times. same time, in order to improve my so, English, I actually got some proper American comics. Not superhero, though. So my first, like I said, it's a multi-part answer. I will answer it over 90 minutes in bits and pieces. Yeah. The first comic same that here. I got in English, that's American, Mad Magazine. Oh. Yeah, specifically, okay. yeah, specifically Mad Super Specials, which were... They came out 10 times a year instead of 12, and they were a collection of older mad stuff. 
So without no, so at the same time when I got in Hebrew, like the worst of modern day American comics, I also got classic 60s, 70s, and 80s Mad, which is like the top of the line of humor comics. Yeah, but the so references probably would have been... Like inter- yeah, it's, a lot of the references flew over my head, but you know, Mad had its own simpler gags and jokes, and these were things that I would read and reread and like re-understand them all the time as I got older. Hmm. So that's me getting into It's comics. funny. Um, yes, it was funny. You Sean, had like this... <laughs> You had this scenario, like this encounter with one of the worst events that ever came out. Um, I actually, like, you, you could sort of break my exposure to comics into two periods, like I said. So the first one, as I was going through like this legacy virus stuff and sort of tentatively branching out into other comics, a little bit of Spider-Man, um, I don't remember if this was the time that Spider-Girl was... No, I, th- I think that was much later. Um, but in any event, one thing that happened was um, there was the Age of Apocalypse. And I, I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but me being, you know, the wrong age to understand the idea of, like, marketing gimmicks... I genuinely believe that the Age of Apocalypse was, like, the end of the story. That the Marvel Universe was, like, over. So once that crossover ended and everything exploded in white light, I was like, well, okay. And I did not go back. And by this point, I'd also lost interest in, like, the X-Men cartoon because it was getting really sort of... Like, in its later years, it, it did not have a graceful ending. Let's put it this way. Past season two, it was just, you know, the animation was getting worse, the voice acting was getting worse, the stories were getting worse. Uh, and there was sort of this tapering off. And that translated in comics to also, like, kind of a lack of interest in just me um, d- just not going back to it the next month. Not even occurring to be like, you know, well, maybe there'll be something else afterwards. I didn't particularly care. You, you had a pool box back um, then, or, or it was just going to the shop and no, picking it up? No, it, it it was like random uh once I think once every two weeks, once every three weeks, I just go to the LCS and, and take a look at the shelves. And they used to organize like, you know, new releases or whatever, but I never subscribed to anything or, or anything like that. Um, you know, there would always be like X Men Unlimited or or I think uh trades sometimes. You know, it would depend a lot on the situation. But at that point it was there was kind of like a break. And I didn't go back to it for a really long time. And a decade and a continent later, uh, I was in my early 20s. And so this is the funny part. Like you being exposed to the worst of the 90s as your introduction. I managed to basically skip over the entire 90s in comics. Given how that decade turned out, that's kind of a blessing that I'm always thankful for. And the thing that got me back into it was um, I had never actually gotten the entire Age of Apocalypse series. 
So by this time, you know, there was starting to be, uh, you know, more availability in terms of trades or whatever. And that got me interested in what was going on in the X-Men today, contemporaneously. The, uh, the first, uh, Brian Singer film had just come out. And that sort of got me, you know, re-interested or whatever. And the first issue of quote unquote contemporary superhero comics that I read was Grant Morrison's first issue of New X-Men. So if if our listeners uh, feel that maybe sometimes I'm a little too complimentary towards that, um, that's that might be why. Um, it was it was a very interesting jumping on point in that one of the things that book communicated that later turned out to be a lie, but at the time I believed was that Marvel, while I wasn't looking, had entered into this kind of new way of telling stories, this experimental direction. You had Milligan's X-Force coming out around the same time. Marvel Knights just started. Marvel Knights was going on. Bendis was about to start Daredevil. Like, you know, there were a lot of things there that did not line up with what I had believed superhero comic. Like, I thought they had still been in the 90s, you know, at that point. This was early 2000s. And it was the tail end of the Gemis presidency. And, you know, there was some interesting stuff going on. DC, I felt at the time, didn't have anything that was appealing to me. They just didn't. Like, I would look across, and I think this was during um, sort of the build-up to Identity Crisis. Or what was the name of the one? No, no, no. Identity Crisis was far later. Identity Crisis... Was I think two thousand five or six something like well, that. Well, there was something before that that just you know going into it di- final felt so nights, alienated. Maybe no, it might have been. No, that was earlier. That was mid nineties. I don't remember what it was. I, like I it, no it was idea. that forgettable. It, it yeah. was just that unengaging. It, it was and the event that retconned itself out, and all the reasons for that it existed. <laughs> Well, there's always going to be Jeff Johns to remind us at some point, I'm sure. Uh, yeah. uh, but in any event, so what ended up happening, though, was by this point, as a reader, I'd gotten to the situation where I was starting to look not at characters, but as but at the writers themselves. That was where I was placing my priority in terms of what do I want to read. So I went back into Morrison's bibliography some impressed me, some did not, but that ended up taking me into 2000 AD, where I discovered Alan Moore, which led me to Watchmen. And that was kind of the big catalyst. After that point, like, you know, discovering Neil Gaiman and Peter Milligan and, and most of the writers from the British Invasion, and then going back to contemporary Marvel and DC, and also, like, this was the point where, you know... You find out about who Ed Brubaker is, and then it's like, okay, Ed Brubaker is writing Catwoman. I had never read a Catwoman comic before, but it didn't matter to me at that point, because I was following the writers. And to a large extent, that's what I do today. You know, you open up the, the previews, and it's like, these are the writers that I know are good, these are the writers I'm interested in, and I follow them wherever they go. Uh, after, in the late 90s, early 2000s, I got, like, a, enough money from my small-time job and, like, allowances and such. I was still, like, a teenager. And I got into Marvel Comics in English because the 
the the Hebrew versions got canceled like out of out of the blue. Like the fans ran out and they were like, "Sorry, no new issues." Mm. Rub shoulders, but I had to fill it up with something, and my parents didn't care as long as I was reading something in English. So from Mad, I switched to let's see, it was uh, Christopher Priest Black Panther. Halfway through the run, halfway through the run, and Kurt Busiek's and George Perez's uh, Avengers. Yeah, yeah, and which I liked very much at the time, but I was getting into both of them while they were already in swing. And I don't know if you remember Priest Black Panther. That was like a super dense book. You're getting into it, and suddenly throws like twenty-seven thousand characters at you that all knew each other in advance, and they all this. All had these deep intermingled relations that they hate each other and they know each other. And who's this Killmonger guy? Wait, Enemy of the State Part 2? What's Part 1? When was it? Uh, <laughs> and at that point, uh, as every, well, as most Israeli boys do, I got rafted into uh, the IDF. And that was a break. That was my version of your break, I think. I still read comics. But only in sporadic trades, like I would go into the city every three or four months and just buy one trade because I didn't have any money at all. So it was like three years of reading them every once in a while. But then I got out and the day, basically the day I got out, I went to the store and I just jumped in again. I think I crashed into Vertigo, and I crashed into Wildstorm, and I crashed into, not Image, uh, like Dark Horse, maybe. And yeah, Image wasn't there yet, I think. No, 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 it was 2006 that I swung back in, and as I, as I started, like, applying to the universities, I thought, I want to talk about this, like, this is the thing that I love now. And I want to write about this. And if I want to write about this, I have to read this. And it was this during my uh, BA that I went into a lecture uh, that one uh, Sean Edry did, I think, under, <laughs> under Professor Ilana Gomel. And on your computer, you had an animal man, I believe, uh, screen, not screensaver, like a shield or something? Desktop. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I saw that, like, very sneakily while you were taking questions. You're, you're, you were talking about comics. It was a lecture about metafiction and, uh, like, presentation to narratives or something like that. Narratology yeah. 101. It was 10 years ago that when we met. And I was like, oh, I will sneakily make the current lecturer appreciate me more. And I asked an animal, animal man question. You're like, oh, yes, that's very clever indeed. And that's, yeah. I don't. I don't know if you remember that. I guess not. I do actually. Oh, you you remember, you remember the event. You don't remember me being sneaky about it. No, but I'm not surprised that you were. <laughs> like you know, that's how in in the academy that tends to be how fans of comics find each other is being like you know that subtle. You you know Animal Man. Yeah, yeah sure. You know. Hey kid. Yeah. Hey kid. You know Animal Man. C- come here, kid. <laughs> oh, no, 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 you're too young. You can't read Animal Man yet. <laughs> yeah, sorry. So that's what, the hey, kid, you want... So com- comics connect both me and Sean. 
That's yeah. Not, that's like that's how we met. Their secret origin of the smorgasbord, and merely nine years later, we did a podcast together. Well, to be fair, you had been doing podcasts about it forever. Yeah, like, but in the long year, before. Count. It does count. No, because one of the reasons that I was like, let's start a comic book podcast was because you were doing like four or five of them in Hebrew, but like discussion podcasts in all things. Like the fact that it was in Hebrew doesn't change the fact that it was talking about, you know, current events in the medium and the latest comics and reviews and opinions about writers or whatever. And it was genuinely interesting stuff. And I was like, I would like to do that. I will not speak in Hebrew because that ain't my game, but you know, let's see what we can do. Yeah, and after um, three years of doing that, our, my English is almost passable. Almost. <laughs> uh, we both, by the and way, so my, so we both basically Hebrew. agreed that the actual starting point for the podcast was when House to Astonish, our favorite comic podcast, took its long break. And we were saying, well, somebody should fill the space. And there were lots of comic podcasts, but yeah. nobody was doing exactly what they do. And we said, well, we'll do the cover version. We, we, and yeah. at first, we j basically did a cover version, like news, snark, reviews. Exactly yeah. that. We, we, I think we, we actually considered stealing their uh, uh, house, uh, the official handbook shtick, but we decided that would be too much. We had a twist on that, but I don't remember what it was. We, we thought about something, and at the end, we, did, we just did trade reviews instead, which they Yeah, did. I, I think, like, you know, that's also... I mean, if we're talking origin points and entries, so I, I do have to, like, if, if we mention them, I have to give huge credit to Paul O'Brien specifically. Not to slight Al Kennedy, but Paul O'Brien at the time, when I was getting back into it, was doing the X-Axis, mm -hmm. which was this website of, like, comprehensive X-Book reviews. And the thing is, it went back to before, like, pre-Morrison years, So he's still doing it. Was a fantastic. It. Uh, well, he, he does it, it, it on like the Hustler's version on his blog, but and actually, yeah. you know, his reviews started before that. He was doing reviews on alt on alt news groups. So this guy is basically yeah. reviewing X Men comics on a near weekly basis for fifteen years now, more than that, almost twenty. Yeah. Almost 20. I, I think I, if I remember correctly, the, the first in the X axis, when you go back as far as you can go, I think it went up to like 1998. Yeah. Yeah. Like 1999, I think is the first one saved. And it's not the first one. It's just the first one that you can find on the like saved site. Yeah, so that was like 20 years worth of reviews. But the thing is, like, be, what the X-Axis offered specifically was the way that he had set it up was it was organized by year and by book. So as I was reading Morrison's run and getting, like, you know, really invested, it never really occurred to me to go back to the 90s and be like... Because, you know, by that point the reputation of the late 90s had established itself, right? Like, you did not want to read Onslaught. You did not want to read Heroes Reborn. You didn't want to know anything about, like, that weird X-Men revolutions period where they brought back Claremont and his whole thing was slavery, mind control, slavery, mind control, slavery, mind control, bondage. Like, you didn't want to do that. But the way that 
O'Brien was writing about it was so entertaining that it was sort of an acceptable substitute that filled my need to be like, okay, this is what happened. None of it actually mattered, but at least I know. And I am grateful to him for that. And afterwards, like when he teamed up with Al Kennedy to do House to Astonish, you know, that was the first podcast that I ever listened to. And it's probably not a coincidence that it was a podcast that was focused a lot on, you know, Marvel, the X-Men, the stuff that I was already interested in. And would occasionally be like, well, DC's doing and, something too. And I, what's important to me, I think I've also read the X, uh, the X-Axis. What's important to me that O'Brien and Kennedy did before that was they were both member of Ninth Art, which the, mm. it was the first time I ever followed like every view collective blog, something that would later evolve into what we have today, like, well, comics lines now canceled, but like women write about comics, only it was like 90% guys. Mm. Early 2000s blogging being, comics blogging being what it is. And those were people who knew and liked the things that I already liked, like they liked superheroes and stuff, but they also liked other stuff. And through them, I learn to enjoy to broaden my taste because you you had the comics journal and as a website even back then but going into the into stuff like the comic journal at the time it was obvious you weren't the reader they were looking for yeah they let you know like oh you're not smart enough to read what we read you have no knowledge or appreciation of early 1930s moroccan moroccan earth strip comics I said, well, okay, I have no idea what you want from me. I moved on to Ninth Art. And they would talk about stuff that I knew. They would talk about X-Men and Spider-Man and New Warriors and whatever. But they would also talk about uh, The Horde or Dark Knight Returns or 2000 AD or or a lot of the early Milligan stuff. They were all big Milligan fans. And 90% of those guys went on to become rather big names either in making comics or creating comics, because Anthony Johnston was there, and Kieran Gillen was there, and Paul O'Brien, and Elle Kennedy. Uh, what's what's her name? Uh, she wrote uh, Archie vs. Predator, and... Uh, I can't remember her name. Ke- hmm? uh, ooh, Smoke and I Ashes? Know, I, I know who you're talking about. Alex yeah. DeCampi. Alex DeCampi. She wrote there also for a while, but she already had, like... She already wrote a few comics when she got into them. But as I was saying, it felt like a nexus point of people who knew comics, who loved comics, who could talk about it in intellectual manner without alienating people who weren't as knowledgeable as they were at the time. Yeah. And I think, like, for me, the capstone, I didn't actually find out about Ninth Art until it was done. <laughs> but... Here's here's kind of a funny little bit of, uh, you know, history and everything is connected, all that. Um, as, when I was in my sort of looking for other things that were on the level of Watchmen, not in terms of quality or artistic merit per se, but in terms of like, this thing stands on its own. Read it and you're done. One of the things that I was curious about was a series called Grendel by Matt Wagner. And I, because that series was not published sequentially, and 
everything about it was such a mess back then. Like today we have the omnibuses from Dark Horse. It's a lot easier. But back then it was just a pain in the ass to try and figure out like how am I supposed to read any of this? And I was Googling and not really sure what I was doing. And then I found a website called Sequential Art Continuity Pages. Um, and this was, how long ago was it? Must have been like 10 years easy. And that was, let me just pull it up here just to make sure I get it right. Yeah, okay. So what that was, Julian Darius, founder of Sequart, uh, had put together a list of all of the comics, the writers, the, the direction, a brief summary, in a chronological list. Which, for someone who had no idea where to get started with this shit, but knowing that I wanted to, was actually kind of helpful. So I ended up using the continuity pages as a sort of guide for a lot of material that I would later encounter. So for example, you know, Sandman, Planetary, which I didn't like, but it was still there. Um, a lot of individual writers before I got sick of them, like there was a period where I liked Warren Ellis and uh, continuity pages led me to Transmet, led me to a lot of those things. And um, it was a useful guide. So thanks, Julian. And um, that sort of got me to the point where I am now. Like a big, a, a big part of it, I think, you know, something that I am grateful for to this day is the fact that at some point this all went digital. Because I think if that had not happened precisely at the point in time where... I could, like, I could have seen myself losing interest in comics again before the image renaissance. Like, in that 2006, 2007, 2008 period, there, I could have sort of dropped off. But because it, everything went digital around that time, it became so much easier to follow these things and to find collections and to keep things up without, like, chasing after single issues in case they sold out. I think so, it's interesting that we both are, I guess, the last generation to get into pre-digital comics. Because when we, yeah. like you said, when we got into it the second time, it was already starting to be digitized. And yeah, we didn't have comicsology. And, but we, you already had like pirate sites. You can already, at, at the early 2000s, get full issues scanned and pirated from various sources. So the, the not that we that, would ever condone such a thing. No, no, no. As a as a as a young one with nearly a shekel to my pocket, I admit I often did pirate comics, and when later when I got older, I bought most of them just to show support. Um, mm. But what I'm trying to say is, uh, when we got older, there was already this idea that nothing will be ever lost again. And not only, and that was one thing, and the other thing was that there were people online who shared your interests. You didn't, you weren't alone. And like you, you were in a big city, and you had a comic shop. I didn't have that. I was the guy reading comics. I was, I was not a, I was not a comic nerd. I was the comic nerd because there wasn't any other person in my group who read them, who cared yeah. about them in any which way. So I. Like the Toms of 10 years later, the children of Mikey Boots who grew up 10 years later, it must, it must be a completely different experience. You already know there are people like you 
out there, people who share your interest. And, and it becomes much easier to get into things, I guess, because you can get them much cheaper, much faster. If you can't order it, well, you know, just buy a digital for half the price usually. But at the same time, it almost feels, and this is just pure nostalgia talking, that mm-hmm. something is lost to the idea of being surprised. Because part of the thing of the digital age is that we're no longer surprised. We know everything in advance. It will all come out on websites and announcements and in conversations on Twitter and Facebook. Everything will be spoiled and you already and you come into the store. You pretty much already know what you're gonna get because it's things are much more in order. So the idea of picking something and just getting lost into it is kind of lost like the old video shops before I kind and of disagree no, no I'm not I'm not saying it's I'm not saying it's bad I'm just saying it's no 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 I, I just like the, the the fact that it's a thing I kind of disagree because I remember oh. like if we're talking comics in the early 90s they always had those um, those order pages in the comics themselves that would give you summaries of what was happening in like all the other comics I, I think it, they might not, they were not as detailed obviously as today today we know three months in advance all the major storylines we have the checklists and all of that but even then I think the the fact that they would include these order forms and then have like little um, synopses of like every single issue that was being published that month because they wanted you to order more right even then Marvel money you know um, yeah. So, yeah, so I think that knowledge was available back then. The only significant difference is that we as kids did not necessarily care. Like, as grown readers, it does matter to us a lot more, I think. Okay, there's a new Brian K. Vaughn book. Tell me when and tell me where and I'll be there. But And also having the complete set, which is something that as a kid I didn't really care about. Yeah. Today, today thinking yeah. back, oh, I didn't have the whole of Priest Run. What a terrible thing. But at the time, it was, oh, I'm reading comics. Oh, there's another one. It yeah. wasn't, oh, I should go back and find the previous 30. I didn't thought about that that much. And yeah, I think I think that as kids, the, the major difference is that... And I don't know how this changed. It, it might have been a cultural change or it might have just been like the nature of the medium itself. As kids, I think growing up, neither of us necessarily felt that we were missing out by not knowing what was happening with the rest of the universe. We just assumed that like these issues were capsules of stories and maybe sometimes they were part one and part two. But if you didn't read part two, it wasn't that big of a deal. You'd figure it out. You know, like there was no sense of urgency to it. Today, I think... I don't think that it comes from the collector mentality per se, but from more of an expectation of because the prices are higher now, if you are going to invest in a comic book, you want the complete story. Whereas back then, you know, comics cost a dollar fifty tops when I was growing up. You know, at the point in time when I was getting into them, it really didn't matter to me that this series was getting canceled and this new one was launching. It's like it did. Whatever you know. Well, uh, back then, uh, back then you could buy a comic for a nickel, even if it had a hole in it. <laughs> I wouldn't go quite that far because that's why you end up in like Archie Land. But um, 
Yeah, you know, the, wh- when they were cheaper, I feel like you could afford to see them as disposable and therefore not necessarily, you know, missing chapters would not feel to you like gaps in your reading experience. Whereas today, you know, three, four bucks for 22 pages, I'm like, listen, give me the trade and that series better run for long enough for me to get into it. Like, I'm seeing a lot of normalization these days of, you know, oh, the series only ran for six issues, that's fine. How long did you want it to go anyway? Preferably long enough for it to have a storyline. Twelve would have been nice. Uh, But, like, even twelve, like, you know, stories that end after twelve issues used to be considered failures. Yeah, Marvel really (laughs) shot... Well, I, they didn't shut themselves. They shot the whole direct market in the food with their renumbered. We've talked about this a million times before. Yeah. I am interested in another yeah. thing. Uh, some of the earliest trades that I had, because every... At the early years, like when I was 15, 14, I would every once yeah. in a while, my mom would either go to the US or do an order from Amazon, which was a very special mm-hmm. event, and I would get a trade. And I had, for okay. years and years, I had about a dozen trades. And and I read them over and over again. And unlike a lot of the early comics that, for me, are now disposable, like, I have no nostalgia whatsoever towards Ben Riley Spider-Man. Uh, <laughs> the, tra- the trades that I had were Watchmen. There were The Dark Knight Returns. Uh, it was the first trade of Garth Ennis's, uh Punisher with Steve Dillon. And it was the first two trades of Transmetropolitan. And those okay. are things that I am still... Not as much as back then, but things that still define my taste as a comics fan. I would still so... say, yes, I'm an Ennis <laughs> fan, I'm a Miller fan, I'm a Moore fan, I'm a Dylan fan, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Derrickson fan. So I can't quite match that pedigree because my first trades were... Well, you said it th- was the Phoenix I, I, Saga. It was the Phoenix Saga, but like once I actually got more into it, like the first dozen trades or so that I have are like Executioner Song, Fatal Attractions. Um, there was also like some other stuff, like obviously watch, of course, right? But, like, really esoteric stuff and, like, weird stuff. I remember, like, the the Justice League cartoon was running and I picked up JLA Earth 2. That was a great and trade. That Super was a great expensive. trade, but it was also, it was also, like, done in one. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I did yeah. not have to keep going after that. And, um, yeah, so, the, and, of course, uh, um, Bendis' Daredevil and Jinx. Which I still think holds up. Were you a, the type of guy who reread constantly, or are you always looking for the next thing? Uh, a little of both. What would happen would be like I can read a trade. I, to this day, I'm like this. I can read a trade or read a story, enjoy it, like put it in my you know my collection. If uh, if it's from Comicsology and it's like DRM free, I have a little backup drive. If not, it's on my Comicsology you know reading list. And um, from that point, it's like sometimes I will be doing, you know, whatever. And I'll be like, you know what I want to read right now? I want to read that scene from Dead Enders with the bike at the end. Just that, that, like that one portion of the story 
because like I, I want to see it again. I want to see if it's as good. It usually is as good as I remember. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there are th- with me. It's always like I will enjoy it the first time through. No questions asked. Second time through, it's usually because I want to see a particular scene again. Or I want to revisit, like, a, a portion. And that's why, like, that's another reason why th- this digital revolution was so kind to me specifically. Because it is much easier for me to click on a file, open it, and find the section, than go digging into the shelves for the trade volume and flipping through the pages. And in some of those cases, those trades are old as shit. And they are not really built for, you know, quick flip-throughs. Hmm. I'm I'm asking because one of the things again it's nostalgia and it's not something that I should miss but I do is having such a small amount of comics that meant that I could really go and dig deep into them because they were the only things I had to read that was comics and mm. I felt I got to know those works and really like fall in love with them over and over again and today Again, because of digital, because I have, well, because I have more money in my pocket, I, it feels like you, you not only can, but you should, you should get everything. Oh, this comes out, and this comes out, and this comes out, I should read this. And even in the slowest of months, when we still did the monthly previews, I would still, like, with a pen in my head, like, mark with a pen or a pencil, okay, I should probably read this. Oh, I want to read this. And the library of stuff that you want to read, Versus the library of stuff that you've actually read is getting bigger and bigger. Like the ratio is getting ever against you. And it's it's almost like TV critics today always complaining, oh, it's the golden age of television. We can't keep up. And, and for me, it's both like that in comics. Oh, there's so much terrible stuff. But even if like 1% of what's coming out is good, it's still too much. Because there's so much. Not only there's so much new comics coming out. There's all this old stuff that I've never read before that's being reprinted and rediscovered and reappreciated. And suddenly, if I can't read that, what sort of a critic am I? Because I define, self-define as a comics critic, as a comics reviewer, whatever. So I have to be part of the conversation. So I have to read this thing and this thing. Even if I don't, even if I want to read this thing, I also have to read this thing. And one of the results is that I almost never reread something, even if I really, really liked it. I almost never reread anything. Last year, I forced myself. Like, I said to myself, no, you have to get into your old grooves again. I forced myself to reread King City and From Hell simply so I could, like, see if I'm still into them. And I am. But every night when I sat down with those issues, with those trades, I thought, oh, but what about all those new comics that came out and I'm missing right now? It's like a race. I'm feeling like I'm in a race. And maybe it's one of the reasons while we're closing down this podcast. So I could be like, oh, I don't need to read stuff. I can read just what I want, not what I need to read anymore. Yeah. I think um, that might be where this whole hardline stance for me evolved of... It has to be, you know, I choose not to acknowledge this book. I'm not interested in any of that. If a book gets into a crossover, I drop it immediately. Like, those may seem like very harsh positions to take because 
I do end up sort of shutting myself off from a lot of things that people are talking about in the industry. But I honestly think that the flip side of that is like the advantage being because there's such a huge selection of comics today and because digital makes it all the even easier for you to reach back and get the old stuff, right? That to me seems like rather than, than sort of forcing you to read more and more in order to keep up, it had the opposite effect of, on me of sort of this empowerment of I will read whatever the hell I want to. And if a book gets canceled or if a book like starts gets a new writer that I'm not interested in or Batman Metal is now crossing over into 30 different books, including the one I wanted to read. I'm like, you know what? There is no shortage of alternatives for me. At the, like the, that's sort of the, the, the other side of the coin, as it were. Back then, fewer comics also meant you had less choice of what to read. You were either going to read the Clone Saga or you were not going to read Spider-Man. You know, and if you were into Spider-Man, you kind of had to go along to the ride. Um, mm. But now, you know, if you are not interested in whatever the hell Dan Slott is doing, just go read Chip Starsky's Spider-Man. Or go read an image comic about a character that's a lot like Spider-Man, but maybe is a little more, you know, common sense. Maybe has evolved a little bit in the last 20 years. There are all of these possibilities now. And yeah, it's impossible to read everything. It's impo- I think someone even once tried to like crunch the numbers as if what would it take for you to read the entire Marvel universe on a monthly basis? It's a ridiculous amount of money. It's a ridiculous amount of comics. I I, I, I did it once, and even if you didact the Star Wars book and the children's books and the Marvel Adventures line, it was like forty five, fifty comics. Most of them yeah. are four dollar each, so. Over $200 a month. Yep. A ridiculous sum of money, right? And that, but that is also why I think that development is what for me crystallized that position of we have to be the ones who determine what is and is not important to our reading list. I will never allow Marvel to tell me this book is important. See, I and, will decide if it's important. See, and here's the thing. Even, even if you didact Marvel and DC, which I pretty much do always nowadays, I even dropped mm. Glenpool recently because, I I don't know, I've read... I read an issue and I felt okay. This feels like you've already made this point, and it's not. It's not like the book turned burn. It just turned like okay. I've seen it. I, I know what you're doing again. Uh, so I'm reading zero Marvel books pretty much. I'll wait for the collection of the recent uh, Punisher origin story because it's Edison Parlov and I love them. But even that, it's I'm waiting for a collection, and I'm reading zero uh-huh. DC Universe books. So even even that. Even without those two companies, the, the big two, quote unquote, it still feels too much because it's not only it's. We used to think about okay, there's Marvel and there's DC, and then below them there's Image and Dark Horse. But when I look at my habits, like my reading habits, it's it's DC and and it's uh, it's Dark Horse and Image and ITW and Boom and Oni and Fantagraphics and and Drawn and Quarterly and Alternative Comics and Black Mask. And Rebellion, and Aftershock, and then Vanity Comics, and Z- Z2 Comics. There's new publishers all the damn time, and they all publish too much comics, and I just really want them to stop. 
I want to get no, a monthly previews that like disagree. one fourth of the size. That's it. See, see, I completely disagree with that because I think that the the upside to that scale is that you are not required to read everything. Like, I know, I real, know, I know in my mind I'm not required. No, no, but it's not just burns. a question of. It's not just an issue of your heart, though. It's an issue of, like, you, you mentioned Aftershock, right? Mm-hmm. Currently, the only book that Aftershock puts out that I'm interested in is Animosity. I tried Alters. It didn't speak to me. I tried a couple of other bu- books of theirs. They don't interest me that much. Same goes for Black Mask. I acknowledge the fact that Black Mask existing and Aftershock existing as alternatives to the main market is a fantastic thing, and I'm happy that that it is. But I do not need to read it if I don't enjoy it. Legitimately enjoy it, you know? That is the difference between why do I read Gem and not, like, something else from IDW, like G.I. Joe or Mask or something, because those books didn't appeal to me. Gem, I thought, was entertaining from start to finish, and when it was done, I did not have any brand loyalty to IDW. It's That's not, a big no, part I, of it. I, 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 no, like, I, don't, we, I don't have brand loyalty. I'm just saying, even... I don't. I don't read Transformers, just read Transformers. I only read, like, the one Transformer book that I like. But exactly. I'm say, but I'm saying it still feels too much. I don't know. Maybe it's me. Maybe... Maybe it's my need to like reread and re-understand, and I don't know, but I there's it. It still feels too much. Didacting everything and removing everything, but the stuff you really only think, oh, this sounds great. It's still too much. It's too much. You you I had a similar post on TV on Facebook recently where you said in the 1990s we said there was nothing to see, and now we're saying there's too much to see. And for me, that's comics, not television. Yeah, I think the difference there is just like, even like TV wise, my problem specifically is not that there is a lot to watch, but that I'm behind on the shows that I do watch. That's all it is. Like with comics, it's like, I acknowledge that my reading list these days is 80 to 90% image. Usually if there's a new number one, I'll at least give that number one a try. And the way that they write comics and the way that they produce them mean that usually you know, I will be on board. They will win me over. Uh, most recently, like, Extremity won me over. Which oh, is really? not something revolutionary. Yeah, yeah because I remember not, we've talked about not, the first issue, you didn't really like it. I, I super enjoyed I, it. Yeah, I went back for the first arc, and the first arc really, en- you know, I enjoyed it. Yeah. Oh, uh, Jeff Lemire's Roy- Royal City. Royal City also, I had a really good time with it. You know, so yeah, sometimes new series come out and I'm interested. But the flip side of that, Tom, like, look at how often, first of all, with Image specifically, most of their books go on hiatus. It's not 12 issues a year. There's that. Boom, almost everything they put out, even like the really good stuff, nine times out of ten is a four-issue miniseries or a five-issue miniseries, right? James Tinian just started that uh, the new three-parter, right? Eugenic. Mm-hmm. It's three issues. You know, uh, Giant Days... Proceeds in packs of like four issues. A trade is four issues. It's nothing. You know, like there is a, a much higher number of good series out there. But I think even within like the, the overall over of good books, you can still be selective and say, you know, how many times during reviews and episodes have we looked at comics and said, this is okay. Like it's not a bad book, but I don't want to read any more of it. You know, that, that's a valid feeling to have as a reader these days. And I don't think that we're, 
Like, I, I think it's kind of a leftover from the 90s sense of, you know, collecting and the need for completion and the need for having all of the issues and being able to read start to finish. These days, it sort of translates more to, I think, a feeling of these are the books that I want to read. If they get canceled, I will be pissed off because I was enjoying them, but another one will come along in five minutes. Like, I don't, you don't need to be, I mean, look, ringside, I was having a great time. It's, it just got, I don't know if it's canceled or ended at the end of 15, but whatever it is, it's coming to a close. Descender is ending. The Autumn Lands, nobody has seen that in like six months, right? You can get attached to these books and read them, but how, like, how consistently do they actually require you to pay on a monthly basis? They don't come out monthly. <laughs> Most of the time, they're not out monthly. Right? Mm-hmm. There, there's a flip, there's a flip side to that. You know, that's sort of the, the, the other advantage of having so much in terms of quantity, right? So many available pursuits. I'm sure that Copperhead, for example, right? Copperhead made, is like on issue 18, 19, 20, whatever. Clearly it has a fan base. I'm not denying that, but I read the first issue and I'm like, I have no particular need to keep going with this. Y'all have it. Enjoy it. And then, you know, Motor Crush sold me on the first issue. But Motor Crush also was gone for like three, four months. It's just now coming back to the second arc. There are, the, the fact that the other publishers, right, the non-DC, non-Marvel publishers use atypical publishing strategies is, I think, something that is to our advantage. Well, By I think it's less they're let- atypical, it's just the new typical and we, we're still not totally used to it. I don't think it's a new typical at all because Marvel and DC are still dominating the market using the same strategies that they've used we've, all along. We've, ta- we've talked about it in the last episode when we talked about Marvel. I think it's wrong to say that Marvel is dominating the market simply because the direct market is no longer comics. It's just a faction of comics. And as much as I like many of the products of the direct market, if it were gone tomorrow... It's not like, oh, the medium of comics is nowhere else to go. No, it has. It has the internet and the bookshops and small fanzines. And, you know, Marvel dominating the market. And as I've said like 20 dozen times before, Rena Telegmeyer, (laughs) you know, stands about and like, what are you selling? Oh, you sold 50,000 copies. How cute. Sure, but that's also, I mean, that's a perfect example too. Raina Tengelmeyer sells an insane amount of comics. I don't necessarily have to read them if I don't want to. And in fact, I have the sneaking suspicion that her books are not meant for me. For like readers of my age, you know, not necessarily. I am considering like there will come a point where I read Smile and Drama and like some of those, but it's not a priority. And I think the the thing with the market is, you know, we do have to acknowledge that some publishers do this, right? They flood the market with an insane amount of books and then expect us to sort of pick through the debris and find the ones we like. And some take hiatuses and some are very, are limit themselves to like one kind of book, right? The tie-in, the licensed content. And one defines itself by publishing mostly miniseries. And another one is like very esoteric material that may or may not appeal to you. You know, the, those differences, I think, make it easier for us to not give in to the monthly grind. You know what I mean? 
Like I to the extent I mostly read in trades and arcs, but there are certain companies that when I enjoy their material, I do buy them on a monthly basis, even if I don't read them on a monthly basis to support them. But that is a decision that is made, you know, on a case by case basis. I would never apply the parameters for reading a book to image that I do for Marvel. You know, where like a Marvel book has to sell me on the first issue. Image can sell me on the first arc. I will give it that time. Yeah, fair is fair. You know. Uh, yeah. How much do you think what you read as a child, like the first comic that you read, define your taste today? Because when I look at what I've read, like I said, I think it's mostly just the habit of reading comics and I don't think mm-hmm. it dictates my taste today at all because as I've said I think most of it was garbage and I've when I, when I stopped reading Marvel and DC I was like oh it's a huge part of me that like I'm just no nah, I'll just read something else mm. I actually think that that also counts as influence I think that You know, your exposure to the worst period of the 90s determined that going forward, you would not be reading that. You would be reading the antithesis of that. And the antithesis of Onslaught is, you know, what is considered today to be highbrow comics art. You know, the stuff that most people have never heard of that is absolutely not commercial like a Cobra, right? Material like that, that is designed as a response in some ways to the sort of tedious, unimaginative drivel of the mainstream. And I think that's true for me, too. You know, yes, I grew up on the space opera and, you know, the, the, the high melodrama of the X-Men in very specific periods of time. But looking like, think of it, think of it this way, with all of my attachment to that particular franchise... It was nothing for me to drop them after the second coming. Nothing. They said they were going to do Schism and then Avengers vs. X-Men. And I looked at all that and I said, Dear listeners, no, Sean is talking you. about the event known as Second Coming. You did not miss Christ resurrecting in in middle of the <laughs> I just want to make sure. You know sure. they called it the Mutant Messiah, which was a decent storyline, but it was not... It you was, know, there's a recognition there. There was a series of promises of like, oh, we would solve... Because they they uh, like displaced all the mutant powers and then they had like a series of events. It was Second Coming, then Messiah Complex, then uh, God's Messiah Tether, Complex came first. Then, uh, I don't know, they were, all, they were all having those stupid biblical names and it ended up being yeah. nothing. I don't even remember when they decided that Mutants are back. It was just like, oh, yeah, okay, whatever. There are mutants. It was just There a response. Yeah, it was, it was a response to House of M. You know, House of M screwed a lot of things up for the X-Books. And then at some point, uh, Mike Carey and Ed Brubaker and Peter David were just like, let's just do Messiah Complex as a cheap excuse to bring mutants back. But the point is, you know... Me, I think that me growing up on, you know, the X-Men show and the Dark Phoenix and the 90s, uh, Fab- uh, Nicieza and Lobdell and all of that towards Age of Apocalypse, it does strongly influence my reading today, not necessarily in terms of continuity, as in that's what I want to see now, but rather as an acknowledgement that the X-Men are not written that way anymore. 
I don't necessarily know if that appeals to me anymore. So in the future, I am looking for things that are not that. Right? So even the worst parts were, you know, they do influence you because they define what you do not read anymore. And my disgust with, like, the fact that I have shut Marvel out completely is because, to a large extent, they are not the Marvel that interested me as a kid. Even if they went back to that, though, it wouldn't be something that I would be interested in reading for the same reason that I don't go back and watch the 90s Fox show, right? Gene! I don't need that. <laughs> you know? It was good while it lasted, but I'm able to move on. You're, but you're, I think that you're does... You're a the X-Men fan. That's what you are. <laughs> oh, no. If I have to be completely honest, I have a little bit of a soft spot for X-Men Evolution, even though nothing about that show makes any kind of sense. But that's a different topic. Mm -hmm. um, really, like I, I think that the stuff that we disavow is just as strong an influence on us today in terms of what we read as the stuff that we loved and the stuff that we still look for. You know, I, I think, like, when I think about it, I'm sure that I'm partial to a lot of space opera comics these days, like Descender, like a lot of stuff that, that, um, that Image put out. Saga. Because of, no, even before that, like, because of the Starjammer stuff in the Dark Phoenix Saga. No, I'm saying Saga which is, I thought, Saga is a result of oh, the yeah, love of yeah. Starjammers and X-Men. Sure, sure, you know, that there was something in that formative period that really spoke to me and that I do look for in other books, but that would not take me back to X. Like, if the X-Men did a Starjammer series today, I probably wouldn't read it because it would get into a crossover by issue three. In fact, shit, they tried this. They they sent, uh, what's his name? They had that uh, crossover with the X-Men and the Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah, the trial of you Jean Grey. Sure, you can sell that bullshit to someone who is not me. I love I love your but, analysis of me that my collection of high couture European album reprints is all a result <laughs> of me rebelling against Ancelot. I hate you, I Daddy. So. I'm gonna read Court of Maltese now. No, but think about it. Like you're the the thing with Ben Riley, right? Okay. Ben Riley is an idea that was ahead of its time. Right at the time that they were doing it, people were like, "What? It's not Peter Parker!" And there was all this loyalty to the character. Meanwhile, in the last ten years, Dan Slott has like killed Peter Parker, had him possessed by Otto Octavius, killed him off again, exposed his identity, sold his wife to the devil. Like, there's been a lot of bullshit that's been going on. That's they tried Joe to Kassad retool Just Joe his... Quesada, don't blame. That's like that's don't just, blame no, Dan that's Slott Trzinski. for that. No, that's Straczynski, right? Straczynski and Slot, oh. that, that, those two writers. Between them, they have tried to revolutionize the character in every which way. So when you think about it, the Clone Saga, if it had happened today, might have been something that people were more into because of like, you know, this whole postmodern angle of the hero is not the hero and maybe there's someone else. And that sort of thing is more common today. But the thing is, you reading it at the time and having no fucking idea what was going on because the Clone Saga ran five years longer than it had to, um, means that you are not likely to get engaged in stories that try to push ridiculous concepts onto mainstream properties and recognizable heroes to which that does not apply easily, right? It's the reason that you hate Civil War. 
but you love Transmet, right? Because Transmet is a thoughtful application of political thinking to a fictional world full of these science fiction concepts, whereas Civil War is a clumsy attempt at applying political concerns to a universe that is not compatible with those concerns. Sean, Sean, please don't bring up Transmet, because then I keep thinking about my younger self and said, that series is so unbelievable. Like, a president of the U.S. can't be that that much of a stupid evil bastard. Uh, like, that was the uh, most outright we- wicked element of Transmet to me. Like, like I can accept all those science fiction technologies that Warren Ellis thinks of and that Robertson draws, but the idea of the president is such an evil bastard with no point to him other than being evil, that's unbelievable. And, and you know, skip back 15 years and, oh... Oh, you were you were too nice, Warren. It's all like like you, you know, were too nice. That's the real crime of that orange bastard. So many parodies and imaginations of like future dystopias have been rendered moot. Like we're we, living there so, now. Some, this, somebody like, once said, fun. like we uh, writers in the twenty in the twenty first century in pop culture writers work so hard to develop the idea of the complex villain and advance the medium and saying, see, we, we can do those characters and we end up in the real world and it's a bunch of people that even Captain Plans would reject as too simply obvious. Yeah. Ooh, Captain Planet, you're taking me back. <laughs> That's the one thing that hasn't but been revived yet, I think. That's like the one... It hasn't. It has That's the one. Yeah, because... Everything else. Well, give IDW a couple of months. Yeah, IDW or Boom or Dynamite. Rugrats is coming back, Sean. Oh on the my very God! Why? On the very, Why? On the very day that we are recording, uh, I believe it's Boom. Yeah, Boom publishes Rugrats number one. Not only it's an ongoing series, it's by the award-winning, Eisner-nominated, Zeri Grant-awarded Box Brown. Which is so what? weird to me. Yeah. The guy wrote uh, Tetris Games People Play and the Under the Giant uh, graphic novel biography. The guy won an award. What is this like, witchcraft? A series of awards. He's, he's doing Rugrats as we record. Well, he already did it. It's I'm being like, published as we record on this day. The whole thing. I'm like, Wednesday. excuse me. Necromancy is illegal. Excuse me. What is this? Raising the dead? <laughs> well, dead babies. Oh. Oh, well. I think, um, I think, I think we'll finish. <laughs> with dead, you know, Trump that's, and dead babies, that's as low as we can go, even on this podcast. That's, that's kind of the end of the origin story. Because, like, the origin story always ends with us. To Trump to dead babies, so we're just going to get lower and lower until it's, <laughs> just, it's just a misery cast. But, yeah, I, to close, like, I honestly think, um, and this is true of every reader, it's not just true of us. I think that the things that got us into comics, you see so many people today talking about how, oh, you know, comics are so alienating to me, I don't enjoy them anymore, I don't love them. I'm like, look, your problem is that, your problem, I say, I'm not saying, saying that to be critical. You are looking for affirmation from the same companies that you got it from as a kid. I said this to all our listeners because it used to be true of me too. You know, you are waiting for Marvel to be the Marvel that you loved when you came into this, but it doesn't work like that, right? The way that you can serve your interests best as a consumer, as a reader, is to say 
you do not care about these brands anymore. Yes, it was a wonderful time that you were reading Batman and Justice League and X-Men and all of these heroes, but you can get those heroes on TV, you can get those heroes in movies, you can find them in a lot of other places than these $5 comic books. And for that price, you can find other, there are so many other stories out there. Some of them are for you. And will have the things that you loved when you came into this. And if you can find them, then that's where you should be. You know, that's the thing that will give you joy instead of sitting around and waiting for Disney-owned company or Warner Brothers-owned companies to see the light. They're never going to see the light. They're never going to be what they were before. Let it go. You know, let it go. Yeah. So this was the smorgasbord. Uh, if you enjoyed us, if you enjoyed our work, once again, you can support Seaport on Patreon. And you can listen to all the episodes on the Seaport.org site. If you like my babbling that much, I am on Twitter, at Tom Shops. If you like Sean's babbling, you can also hear him on another Tough. podcast in English, right? <laughs> yes, I am currently running a video game review podcast with my co-host Boris called Games of Future Past. You can find this on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and uh, we compare past and present video games. And speaking of comebacks, Star Control is coming back. So Ooh, I, I actually, I'm not a gamer, but I remember Star Control. Everybody remembers Star Control. <laughs> yeah, and so. The, yeah, so good times ahead. Yeah, so I'm Tom Shapira. And I'm Sean Edry. Until next time. Bon appetit. Bon appetit.